Good evening. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, uh, we ask your blessing upon this time as, again, we consider a great man that you used in our history. I pray your blessing upon this. I pray that it be a great time of encouragement. We'd be reminded of how good we have it in this age. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our 27 years of church history, as a church, we've never studied church history. We've never done a substantial study of church history. And and there's a good reason for that. That's never been our emphasis as a church. Our church has always been about studying the Bible, going through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And that will always continue to be the emphasis of this church. But that does not mean that we should be ignorant about church history. A lot's happened over the last 2,000 years. And God has done some amazing things through some amazing people. So the whole point of this Wednesday Night Legends is to just give us a taste of church history, examine some key men and women in the faith at key moments in church history that made a big difference for us today. So we're taking several of these men and women. We looked at the Apostle Paul. We looked at Polycarp. Last week, we looked at Augustine. I think Peter drew the hardest guy, but he did a great job with it last week. Tonight, we're going to look at a man by the name of John Wycliffe, and I love this guy. If you spend hours and hours and hours doing research on a person's life and reading their works... They sort of become like one of your best friends. And John Wycliffe has become a very good friend to me. We owe a lot to John Wycliffe. And by the way, he's been a very good friend to the church. So let's just go through some of these details. John Wycliffe was born in CA 1330 AD. Now, whenever you see CA, that's Latin. It's short for Latin circa, which means approximately, right around. So they don't necessarily know his exact birth year. But most land on this date of 1330. He was born in Richmond to a wealthy North Yorkshire family on a sheep farm some 200 miles north of London. He died on New Year's Eve, 1384, December 31st, 1384. He died from complications of a stroke. He was an Englishman. England was his home, and he landed at Oxford University. That's where he spent most of his life. He was a Roman Catholic priest, a scholar, a philosopher, a professor, and a renowned theologian. And he was involved with the production of the first English translation of the entire Bible in all of history. That's John Wycliffe. So just to kind of give you his playground where he played, this is England, here's France. He was born way up here in the north. He went to Oxford University. That's where he spent most of his life. And he died in this place called Lutterworth, where he was serving as a rector of a parish there. Oxford University was his great love. At that time, Oxford University was the premier establishment within all of Europe. The best philosophy, the best theology, the best academics, all of that at Oxford. And he lived most of his life. That would be his home base there as a student, as a professor, a theologian. That was his first love. Okay, two 
really big factors that you have to be aware of when you consider the life of John Wycliffe. Two very important ones. Number one, the most powerful political, religious, and economic entity in Europe in his lifetime was not a kingdom. It was not a country. It was the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was in absolute authority over all the European countries, the kingdoms, individuals, all of these different things. And they had been in control by John Wycliffe's time for 1,000 years. So there was one church for 1,000 years over authority in Europe. This one church was the only means by which one could attain eternal salvation. All precepts of the church had to be followed without question. If you wanted to reach heaven and avoid hell or purgatory, no other church to choose from. Just that one. The leader of the Roman Catholic Church, as you know, is probably a pope. The pope was uh, infallible. Pope was the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ. And he was in charge of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they had incredible power. They had the power to excommunicate you. If you didn't agree with them, if you got out of their graces, they could excommunicate you from the church, thereby guaranteeing you hell when you die. By the time of John Wycliffe's life, they were able to excommunicate entire countries. A pope could issue what was called an interdict on a kingdom like England or France and thereby removing them from the graces of the Catholic Church. So they had become very powerful. They were all over Europe. Of course, their headquarters was in Rome. Um, and and they, they became more political and economical than they did spiritual. In fact, in the time of John Wycliffe, the Roman Catholic Church owned one-third of the land in England tax-free. And they would push their influence on all the various kings and countries. The church officials, the clergy, they became very, very wealthy. They lived in posh places. They had cushy jobs. They were able to place friends and relatives, often unqualified and comfortable and lucrative, ecclesiastical positions. So this was the power of this church. Not everyone was bad. John Wycliffe was a Roman Catholic priest. But because of this power structure and the way things had evolved, so to speak, over a thousand years, there was a lot of corruption. One church. Also, one Bible. And only one that the Roman Catholic Church used for 1,000 years. And that translation of the Bible is famous. It's known as the Vulgate. A very smart interpreter in the 4th century, a guy by the name of Jerome, translated the scripture from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. That's the Vulgate, the Latin copy of the Bible. And it was used for 1,000 years. Years. Now, here's the deal. By Wycliffe's time, Latin was only spoken by the elites. Only the clergy. Only the highly educated. The common people didn't speak Latin. So nobody could read the Bible. And here's the deal. Even if you could read Latin, you were not allowed to read the Bible for yourself unless you were clergy. In fact, they trained their Bibles to the pulpits. They chained their Bibles to the walls, 
No one was allowed to go in and read that. In that age of the church, only clergy read the scripture and only clergy gave interpretation of the scripture. Now, that's a little dangerous, don't you think? Do you just trust what all these clergy members tell you the Bible is saying? How do you verify? Such was the times in the day of John Wycliffe. Now, this is actually hard for us to even fathom as Americans. We have so many different Bibles, it's nuts, right? We have churches on every corner. Pick one. But in that day, one church, one Bible. And nobody who was uneducated or of the common middle class, lower class, had any access to the Bible at all. So you got to remember that. Now I want to take you through just a general timeline of John Wycliffe's life. We're just going to look at it from beginning to end from a top uh, 30,000 feet scenario. John Wycliffe, he was born in 1330. He arrives in Oxford as a student at 1345. So he was 15 years old when he went to college. Very hard to get into Oxford. He was brilliant. He got in there. At the age of 21, in 1351, he became an ordained Roman Catholic priest. Therefore, he never married. He was a priest till the day he died. He received his Bachelor's of Theology in 1369 and his doctorate in 1372. Now, those dates should sort of freak you out. So he becomes a student in college at 15. He gets his bachelor's at age 39. What were you doing in college? (laughs) I was on the five-year plan, and my parents called that slow. He receives his doctorate at 42. Why did it take him so long? Two catastrophic events happened in his lifetime that completely disrupted society. In 1337, he would have been seven years old, the 100 years war broke out between England and France. French monarchs versus English monarchs for a hundred years. I, it, it, it's a boring history. You got one king mad at another king, and it goes on and on and on. For a hundred years, you got fighting, and for seven years, it'd be hot. For ten years, it'd be cold. Seven years, hot. So it completely disrupted society. And when the hot war broke out, people didn't have a lot of time in their college studies. Even more significant, the Black Death took place during the life of John Wycliffe, the bubonic plague. Folks, that, I think that had to have been one of the scariest times in all of history. Estimates are that somewhere between 30 and 60% of the population of Europe died. Now think about that. Half the population of Europe died in six years. 40 to 50% of the population in England died. 80% of people who got infected were dead within eight days. COVID don't sound that scary when you think of that, but can you imagine living in a time like that? That plague broke out two years before he became a priest and lasted two years after he became a priest. And the plague had a huge, profound impact on John Wycliffe. It was something that really changed his whole mind, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. So you have those two things happening, and then at the same time that all that's happening, 
John Wycliffe became very uh, liked and he became a leader during those years. And he was given different positions of leadership. He was assigned as a rector of four different parishes in England. Now, a rector in, in Catholicism is like the pastor of a church. So he served in that capacity in Lincolnshire, Fillingham, Lutershaw, and Lutterworth, which is where he would die. So he was pastoring churches at that time, four different churches, different times. He was also assigned to become the master of two of the colleges of Oxford University. He became the master of Canterbury Hall, another place called Balloy Hall. So they put him in places of leadership. In addition to that, John Wycliffe served as one of the chaplains to the crown of England. So he's very busy during these college years. And long story short, John Wycliffe would become the most famous professor, scholar, and theologian in all of Europe. He became the rock star of theologians. He was adored and loved by fellow professors, faculty, students. Everyone loved John Wycliffe. And very important to understand this. The poor loved John Wycliffe. The uneducated. John Wycliffe believed that true Christian ministers shouldn't hide in churches or in universities like Oxford. He believed with all his heart that true Christian ministers should be like Jesus and the apostles who went out into the villages and interacted with the common people of the day. And so he did that. He got to know the poor community all over England. He would go to all these different villages, meet them, help people out, minister to them. And in that sense, he just became this famous, famous guy, well-liked by everyone. Okay, a couple other important events. He spends most of his time at Oxford, but in 1374 to 1378, he literally served the crown of England. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. It's going to make sense later, but you have a Roman Catholic priest serving with and on behalf the state of England, the crown of England for four years. He became politically involved with England. After that, he went back to Oxford where he spent his final years at Oxford. And those are crucial years in his life. Crucial. That we'll talk about. Eventually in 1381, he was kicked out of Oxford University where he would go to his parish at Lutterworth and where he would eventually die of complications from a stroke. So this is kind of a top-level view. One more very important detail in his life. Right at the end of his life, 1378, and it lasted for about 40 years, there was a papal schism Pope Gregory died. The bishops in Rome elected their pope. Bishops in France elected another pope. And for 40 years, you had two rival popes in the Roman Catholic Church. It was a great embarrassment to them. And so you had countries siding with different Popes. You had, remember, England and, Fr- and France, they were at war. They sided with one pope, France sided with another pope. And you had that issue for 40 years. That happened right at the end of John Wycliffe's life, in his closing years. And that becomes a big detail 
in his life. So now I'm talking a lot about the Roman Catholic Church, and and I don't want to be seen as a Catholic basher. I do not mean that in any way. We're trying to be as close as we can to the historical facts as we possibly can. And this is the way it was for those 1,000 years. John Wycliffe loved his church. He loved his church. He never wanted the church to go away. He's a Roman Catholic priest. But he ran into troubles. He didn't want to get rid of his church. He wanted to put his church on the right way. He wanted to save his church, so to speak. So he had a couple problems with the church, and this is very important. The first problem that he had was when John Wycliffe looked at life for normal people and compared it to the way the wealthy clergy were living. He saw a great disparity. And it really bugged him. He saw very rich, wealthy clergy members getting along great and the poor struggling. And this really took seed. This really took root, I should say, in his heart during the Black Plague. He looks around England. Half the population is dying. And he became absolutely discouraged with his church's response. There was no response from the church. Instead of the clergy and the wealthy clergy going to help the poor people, they hid in their castles. They hid in their universities. And even, he noticed, that as people died and lost their land, the Catholics would go get the land. My friends, this tore him up. And so after the Black Plague, you can imagine how long it would take to recover from that. He continued to see evidence of that, that, you know, my church, they're in the wrong lane. Church is supposed to deal with spiritual conditions. Church is supposed to be concerned with all the people. Church is not supposed to be about wealth and politics and controlling kings. So he began to preach out against it and to write letters and treatises about it. He would preach these things in in his parishes. And he would preach these things, of course, as a professor at Oxford University. So give me an idea of what, what he said. He said, the church had no business acquiring enormous tracts of land and should relinquish these to civil authorities. Return to the simplicity of Jesus and his apostles and, like them, live in a state of poverty to better minister to the people. That's what he thought. The Roman Catholic Church needs to be stripped of its power, he said. They need to get back in their lane. And he even got to a point where he said, the the Roman Catholic Church should deal with the spiritual. Let the kings, let the state, let the government deal with the civil. And so later he would preach and write, and this is radical, think about this. England belongs to no pope. The pope is but a man subject to sin, but Christ is the Lord of lords, and this kingdom is to be held directly and solely of Christ alone. That is so radical. So he starts, man, my church needs to get out of the political business. Popes don't need to worry about England. They need to worry about the church. My people, my clergy members, they need to start ministering to the poor, common, everyday, uneducated people like Jesus and the apostles did. So he's preaching this all over. Now, mind you, the most famous theologian in the world, the most well-liked professor in the world is preaching this. And there were two groups of people that loved this. One group was the poor people. They're like, go, man. 
Guess who else loved this message? The crown. The king. The state officials. They're like, yeah, man. We got this Roman Catholic priest telling his church to keep their business out of our state affairs. And so you remember those four years that I mentioned where he began to work for the crown? He literally became an advocate for the crown of England. They took him and they brought him around. And there's a very famous case where uh, the Roman Catholic Church wanted to start collecting more taxes from England. And so these royal officials from England, they bring John Wycliffe with them and they have a big... um, fight over it. And John Wycliffe stood with the state officials. In fact, he got up and said, don't give any more taxes to the church. They need to be stripped of their power. Keep those taxes, England. By the way, you got a war to fight. You got people to help after a big plague. So with that going on, John Wycliffe developed a reputation. He was seen as an advocate for the poor against the wealthy church. And he was also seen as an advocate for England against Rome. Think of that. Or put it another way. He became seen as an advocate for the state against the church. His church. That is the stuff of change. That is the stuff of revolution. So that was one of the main problems that he had with the church. Now here's the other problem that he had with the church. John Wycliffe came to believe that the written word of God is the authority. That Latin Vulgate, that book, the Bible, He came to see that as a greater authority than any church doctrine, any church father, including the Pope. You see, John Wycliffe could read Latin. And he gave Bible classes and theology classes. And he came to read and study the Bible. And as he studied the Bible, he became convinced this is the authority. And so he writes... And preaches in his lifetime. Holy scripture is the preeminent authority for every Christian. And the rule of faith. And of all human perfection. For as much as the Bible contains Christ. That is all that is necessary for salvation. It is necessary for all men. Nor for priests alone. It alone is the supreme law. That is to rule church. State. And Christian life without any human traditions and statutes. That is radical. He also wrote, all Christian life is to be measured by what? By scripture. By every single word. So he he became convinced in the authority of scripture. So, he ran into some issues with these guys. So on one hand, he's got the Latin Vulgate, the Bible, in his hand, and he's, and he's reading through it. And then on the other hand, he's seen some of the things that they were doing and some of the things that they were teaching. And they didn't line up with the written word of God. John Wycliffe chose to prefer the written Word of God over church dogma, tradition, interpretation. And so he began to speak out against all these different uh, Catholic practices that were happening for many years. 
John Wycliffe rejected transubstantiation. Now, I say that word. It's a fancy word. Anybody heard that word, transubstantiation? This is the idea that in the Catholic Mass, the the bread and, and the wine is literally turned into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. You're eating the flesh of Jesus and you're drinking the blood. And, and this is done. The priest is able to do that. And you're to partake of, of Christ like that weekly, regularly, to make sure you're full of salvation. I, I, very, I simplified that a lot. But John Wycliffe rejected that based on his understanding of the word of God. John Wycliffe, and I already read you a quote, believed that Jesus was the head of the church, not the Pope. He also believed that all Christians are important, laity and clergy. He rejected the the practice of indulgences. Now this was was seriously one of the more corrupt features of the Middle Age uh, Roman Empire Church. They taught that if if you committed a sin, you could get in a lot of trouble. But if you paid, if if you paid some money to the church, that sin would go away. They also taught, and that's called indulgences. They also taught that, you know, a family member might, might die and maybe not go to hell. They weren't that bad. They went to purgatory. And you could pay, give indulgences to the Roman Catholic Church to pay your your dead relatives way out of purgatory into heaven. So, and they made a lot of money that way. John Wycliffe found nothing like that in the written word of God. Nothing. And so he called them out on it. John Wycliffe rejected private confession. The idea that you have to confess your sins to a priest privately. He, he believed that you could confess your sins to Jesus directly. And here's incredible. John Wycliffe believed in salvation by faith. Not by keeping any church activity. Not by good works. In fact, look at this quote. John Wycliffe. Trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. That is incredible. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. The two chief principles of the Great Reformation were what? Number one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Number two, what? Sola fide, faith alone. John Wycliffe was teaching this a hundred years before Martin Luther was born. He pre-Luthered Luther. That's why if you do a Google on John Wycliffe, He is often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Remember the morning star is the planet Venus that comes up early in the morning. It can be seen by, you know, and then it it always indicates that the dawn is about to come. The sun's about to rise. He's called the morning star of the Reformation. He's also called the spark that lit the Reformation. So this guy was doing it way back then. So he has this incredible respect for the authority of the written word of God. And this began to even escalate to new thinking in his life. And this happened in those three or four crucial years, his final years at the end of Oxford. He began to believe that every single person should have the Bible in their own language. So at the end of his life, he writes this. The laity ought to understand the faith 
And as doctrines of our faith are in the scriptures, believers should have the scriptures in a language which they fully understand. Makes sense, right? In those last crucial years at Oxford, he translated the Latin Vulgate with help, of course, into English. Middle English. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to read or speak Middle English. It's weird. But English, nonetheless. There's an early copy of John Wycliffe's English Bible. Here's John 3.16 and Genesis 1, verses 3 through 4, in John Wycliffe's Bible. For God lewd, so the world that he yaf his unbegutten soon. The ek man that believeth in him perish not, but have everlasting life. And God said, Leet be mod. And leet was mod. And God said, The leet, that it was good, and he departed it. The leet from darkness. Isn't that interesting? He completed that Bible, the New Testament, in 1380. The Old Testament in 1382. So the whole Bible, for the first time in all of history, complete in Middle English in 1382. Now here's what's really cool. He he even did something else. Towards the end of his life, he had... The Bible translated into English. And then he had all of those students at Oxford that loved him. And he had a whole network of poor, uneducated, common, young men all over England. He called them all to to Oxford. They helped him to copy by hand these English Bibles. Now, mind you, uneducated, poor, no names. He trained them up as traveling preachers. He gave them outlines of sermons. And all of these poor, uneducated, common men spread out all over England with their English Bibles, reading their English Bibles to the people preaching those sermons, great revival broke out all over England. That is so God. Is it not? Did Jesus pick the highly educated ones to change the world? The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests. No, who did he pick? Twelve uneducated fishermen from Galilee. It made me also think of the pastor that started the Calvary Chapel movement, Pastor Chuck Smith. Did he pick all the great theologians in the seminaries of America to start a new movement? No, who did he pick? Hippies. Hippies. And they came into his church and he taught them how to just study the Bible in plain old everyday language. And sent them out all over the world to start. It's just incredible. So he continued that work until he died on December 31st, 1384. Training up an army of these guys with their new English Bibles and all over the place they went. Now, these were radical ideas. (laughs) The clergy, they didn't like that at all. And it is absolutely amazing that John Wycliffe wasn't killed. It's, it's an amazing thing. But if you look at his life, he had 54 years on planet Earth. 54 years. He did all this in 54 years. And, and, the, and, and the church officials hated him, but they never got to him. He was divinely protected. So in 1377, 
when he was playing the politician and all of that, um, the, the Pope issued five papal bulls against him. It's a very serious thing. John Wycliffe was to appear before the archbishop in England, and so they had this big gathering, and, and he was going to be rebuked publicly. And um, he had some advocates show up at, at the hearing, like the crown. The crown showed up with him. And we're also told, the historians tell us, that the entire place was packed on the inside and out into the courtyards with poor people. With the uncommon. And that whole hearing got disrupted. And John Wycliffe enjoyed protection via the crown. Now, the Catholic Church at that point, they hit him. They said, you got to be under house arrest. You got to go to back to, to uh, Oxford, which is where he always wanted to go anyway, and go there. And it was like a little slap, no big deal. And he continued doing whatever he wanted to do. So, 1378, within about a year later, the Pope's now really going to come down on him hard, big time hard. I mean, the, almost. This could be excommunication. This could be big deal. The Pope dies. There's a papal schism for the next 40 years. They're no longer interested in John Wycliffe. They got enough problems internally, so he's protected by that. And then here's another really, really incredible thing. So in 1382, with the Pope that was over uh, England, they did organize another hearing against John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe did not have to be there, but all of his writings and copies of his Bible were brought into this area. And they were all to be judged. And the idea is that John Wycliffe was going to be denounced as a heretic, and all of his writings were going to be have to be burned and all of that. So... Picture this big gathering, and then listen to the historian. Here is not to be passed over the great miracle of God. For when the archbishop, with the other doctors of divinity and lawyers, with a great company of friars and religious persons, were gathered together to consult um, touching Wycliffe's books. When they were gathered in London to begin their business on St. Dunstan's Day, After dinner, about two o'clock, the very hour and instant that they should go forward, a wonderful and terrible earthquake fell throughout all of England. Whereupon, most of them being affrighted, thought it good to leave off from their determination of purpose. He was saved. By the crown, by the poor people, by the papal split, and by an earthquake. They never got to him. The worst thing he experienced, though, was in 1381, it got too hot for him at Oxford. You know that whole transubstantiation thing? That was too hot. And because of that and pressure upon Oxford, they kicked him out. At the end of his life, he was kicked out from his favorite place. But they did never excommunicate or label him a heretic in his life. But they hated him. They hated what he stood for. And that church would regather. Forty years later, the papal schism is healed. And they came against a unified front against what was the Wycliffe movement. Against English Bibles. Here's what they said of his English translation. 
By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar. And they are more available to lay and even to women who can read. Ladies, how do you like that? (laughs) Than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. That's what they thought of his English translation. Another guy says this. That pestilent and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil and himself a child or pupil of Antichrist, who while he lived, walking in the vanity of his mind with a few other adjective adverbs and verbs, which I shall not give, crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue. Can you believe that? His crowning act of of wickedness, according to the church authorities of these days, was translating the Bible into English. It became illegal to own an English copy of the Bible. If you were found with one, you could be killed. If you were involved in translating one into English, you could be killed. If one was found, if any of Wycliffe's Bibles or writings were found, they were to be burned. In 1415, when they're having a council to to set that papal schism in order, Wycliffe was formally condemned as a heretic posthumously and excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. A few years later, 43 years after his death, Officials were instructed to dig up his body, burn his remains, and throw the ashes into the River Swift, which they did. Glad he wasn't there when they did it. And at that point, the persecution against anybody with that bent of thinking went full scale. Do you remember that army of poor people that he raised up? Um, the Catholic Church began to refer to them as the Lollards. And it's called the Lollardly Movement. Lollard was meant to be insulting. They stammer, they murmur, they lollard. The Lollards were hunted, killed, and many burned at the stake. So they went underground. They went underground to appear maybe 130, 140 years later with Luther. A historian, though, says this. They burnt his bones to ashes and cast them into the swift, a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus the brook conveyed his ashes into the Avon, the Avon into the Severn, the Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean, And so the ashes of Wycliffe are symbolic of his doctrine, which is now spread throughout the whole world. Beautiful. And it did. From the Reformation perspective, John Wycliffe is called the spark. Jan Hus of Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, One of his relatives visited Oxford University and got a hold of some of Wycliffe's stuff. Took it back to his country and he just went all out Reformation. John Huss was burned alive at the stake at the age of 42. But he's credited as being the flame. And then of course who comes next? Martin Luther, who is said to have been the torch. But it all started with the spark. John Wycliffe. So we remember that, but we also remember him mostly for English translations. The first English translation of the Bible in 1382. A better version of his Bible did show up in 1389 by one of his students, a guy by the name of John Purvey. John Purvey. 
but still basically the same English Bible. The next major English Bible to come along didn't happen until over 100 years later by a guy named William Tyndale. Do you guys recognize that name, William Tyndale? Now, William Tyndale did something really cool. Wycliffe translated from Latin into English. Tyndale is the first guy who translated from Hebrew and Greek into English. However, using Wycliffe's translation as a help. Really cool. William Tyndale was caught and he was strangled to death before his body was burned at the stake. A lot of different English Bibles come along. I'll point out a few more. The Geneva Bible in 1560, this is the first English Bible that sort of looks like our modern. This is the first one that is split by chapter and verses in all of history in English. The Geneva Bible is also called the Pilgrim's Bible. Why? It was brought over on the Mayflower to the United States of America. The first Bible in America was the Geneva Bible. And then, of course, 1611, King James Version. Anybody heard of the King James Version Bible? That's when the King James Version Bible was produced. And if you compare it to Tyndale, who also based a lot of his stuff on Wycliffe, remember, the King James Version is 83% identical with Tyndale in the New Testament. And it's 76% identical with the Old Testament. Tyndale, King James Version. And of course, there have been many. How, many. how many English copies of the Bible do you have in your house? Yeah, they spread his ashes in a river. And it went all the way to the ocean. And his doctrine also spread. And something else happened with Wycliffe. It became the heart of God's people, not just to translate the Bible into English, but into every language. And so Martin Luther, when he comes along, he translates the Bible into German. And the whole heart of God's people then This John Wycliffe spirit, we've got to get the Bible into the mother tongue of the people. And they've been doing that ever since. In fact, what is it? Um, 700 years, 600 years after John Wycliffe's birth, if I'm doing my math right, 1930s, the Wycliffe Bible translators was established. With the goal, and it's still active today, their goal is to make sure that every people group on planet Earth has a copy of at least the New Testament in their language. They're active today. They have a goal. You go to their website. They believe that they can have an active translating process in place or an actual translation in every spoken language on planet Earth by the end of 2025. And they're going for it. All because of a guy who lived on planet Earth for about 54 years. A guy named John Wycliffe. Is the written word of God important? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You get to read that in English tonight. The Bible is so important for us. It equips us. Can you imagine that for many years, almost 1,300 years in church history, nobody could read this verse in English? their own language. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. 
Now we have it. When you get up tomorrow morning and you make a cup of joe, you get your espresso, you get your latte, and you sit down in a chair and you turn on a light and you open up your English Bible. Think of that guy. Or maybe some of you need to do this. Maybe some of you need to get up tomorrow morning, make your cup of coffee, get in a chair, turn on the lamp, and think of this guy. And think of the guys like William Tyndale who were burned at the stake. And then maybe that would motivate you to start reading your English Bible. Do you realize all the sacrifice that went in so that we could get an English Bible? I pray that this study would motivate you to appreciate what you have and what you've been given. Now, we live in an age where it's just, oh, the Bible's everywhere. We can go to a Bible study. We can listen to the Bible. Oh, but, oh, my friend. It wasn't always that way. The other thing I thought about John Wycliffe too again is 54 years. 54 years. What a consequential life. Because he was a man of God. Who loved the Bible and did what was right. Even when it was tough. And God used him in an incredible way. And God will still use his people like that today. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we're humbled. We stand before you tonight. We sit before you tonight humbled. Lord, how grateful we are that You've given us your word, which makes us wise unto salvation, which thoroughly equips us to be the men and women that you want us to be. A book that prepares us adequately for the next life. And I thank you for those who sacrifice so much that we might have it in our own language. Thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would take full advantage of that. And then, Lord, I also pray that um, you would do great things with your li- the lives of your people. Your people right here tonight. You, you have things that you want to do. You want to accomplish through our families, our circle of friends. You want us to be good witnesses for you men and women of faith, men who impact this generation. And I certainly pray, Lord, that we would cooperate with you in that. And Lord, we also thank you tonight that salvation truly is by faith and not keeping any religious works, not being good enough, because we know we can't be. We can never be good enough. We can never be religious enough. And so you said you would give us salvation for free through faith, not free to you. You died on the cross for our sins at great price. And rose again on the third day. So that if we will put our faith and trust in you, you'll forgive us. Change us. Make us a part of your family. If you're here tonight or listening online, heads bowed, eyes closed, and you've never received Christ by faith. The real, living, resurrected Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. Have you received him into your life by faith?
If you haven't, do it right now. Just a simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Let that be your prayer. Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Wash away all my sins. Make me yours. And make my life consequential for your glory in the lives of all those people you put in my path. Give us courage, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.